Today we're going to talk about the purpose of gathering, gathering as a people. And we're going to look at the, the story of God's deliverance of Israel from the nation of Egypt. So let me pray real quick for this, this effort. It's one of my favorite stories, and it is the, the paradigmatic story that was to, to be fixed in the imaginations of the people of Israel uh, for generations upon generations. So God, we pray that, that you would impress upon our hearts and minds this, this story and the importance of this story and, and things that, that we can take out of it so that we are uh, more purposeful and intentional uh, in our meetings together so that we can give thanks and praise to you, Lord God, which we see uh, as one of the most important fruits of your work in us and of the power that you demonstrate us is that it, is that it generates this joyful gratitude towards you. And God, we are, we are amiss. When we, when we fail to see how you've delivered us, and we are amiss when we, when we fail to give you thanks, to stop what we're doing, and to acknowledge all of the ways that you have provided for us and delivered us from our sins and, and answered our prayers. Uh, and God, we, just, we get stuck in our routines and we fail to give you the, the proper thanks uh, and the joyful praise that, that you deserve and that you are worthy of. And so, Lord God, we pray that you would help us to generate that type of, of heartfelt, joyful response to you. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So the, the story of God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt um, is, is the basis for our Lord's Supper. And so it's a, it was to be the... Um, the story that was fixed in the hearts and minds of the people of Israel for generations and hundreds of years to, to come after the event. Uh, and then when Jesus Christ came, he met with his disciples, he had, he had, he had the Passover with them, and then he changed it. And he says, from now on, this is going to be something that you do regularly uh, in, in remembrance of my death and of my resurrection. And whenever you come together to, to meet and to celebrate this, uh, this is the new Passover. This is the new celebration of the people. This is the new, this is the new story. And so I want to go over that, that story. And so turn in your Bibles, if you have them. Text is up here on the screen. Still figuring out some things up here in regard to technology and spacing, but you can follow along. We're going to read from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 20, uh, and then three verses at the end, verses 40 through 42. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt. So this is after God had... Um, plagued Egypt nine times. This is after God had called Moses out of the land of Midian uh, to lead his people of Israel to answer, um, to answer prayer. The people of Israel had been praying for a long time that they would be delivered. Uh, their kids were being killed. They were being forced into harsh slavery. Uh, it was very oppressive. And so Israel was crying out and praying out to God. And so God is delivering them. And so this is just at the beginning of the 10th plague, where the angel of death is going to come and destroy the firstborn of Israel. This month shall be for you the beginning of months. So this is the beginning of their calendar. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. 
And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs that they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from, that, from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses." If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling place, places you shall eat unleavened bread. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Now I skipped the large narrative in which all the events transpired. I'm just focusing on this actual event. And so there are four things that the text gives as a purpose for this gathering. It is a memorial where there is remembering and reminding. It is feasting and celebrating. It is instruction and storytelling, and it is watching and waiting. And so I'm going to go over each one of these briefly, uh, and then just kind of give some, also some ideas uh, as to what we could be doing, 
on top of what we're already doing to meet some of these purposes. So the first one, memorial, remembering, reminding. This is probably the more significant one. And so the original purpose, there was an, it, this was an annual week-long event, all right? So it was at the beginning of their year. It was to, to set kind of their, their tone for the rest of the year. It marked their nation-forming event. So up to this point, Israel, if, you can, if, you, if you're familiar with or remember the stories, uh, God called Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and the, and the book of Genesis ends with Jacob and his children in the, in the land of Egypt. They, were, they, were, they went there from Canaan uh, in order to survive a famine, and God made uh, a nation from them over a 430-year period. They went from like 75 people to over 2 million people. Okay, so Genesis starts, for, excuse me, Exodus starts 430 years after Genesis ends. And during that time, Israel grew so large that Egypt became fearful of them and then subjected them to harsh slavery. And so this is what really creates them as a nation. They, I mean, they were a family, they were a people, but there was nothing really defining them outside of the bloodlines and of them being hostage in the land of Egypt. God has, had done nothing with them during this 400-year period. And so the memorial, uh, what they are to be remembering is, is, first of all, the harshness of Egypt. So the families were to be telling their children these stories about how Egypt became so fearful that they started that the Egyptians started killing their, their children. They were supposed to be telling stories about how they were enslaved to, to harsh labor. They were also to tell the stories of how Moses was called out as a prince of Egypt uh, and then went away for some years and then came back and led Israel from the land of Egypt. They were supposed to tell how at the beginning they didn't trust. They didn't trust Moses. They thought he was arrogant. And so they rejected his early efforts to lead them as a nation. See, they were to be telling these stories. We read these stories and we kind of just think of them as, as matter of fact now because we don't put ourselves into the lives of the characters. But if you're, if you're sitting there as, as Israel, oppressed by Egypt, um, even though you've been crying out, for God's deliverance and for salvation, uh, you've been oppressed for so long that you're scarce to believe that this one guy is going to solve your problems. And so they rejected him at first. But then after God demonstrated his power through Moses, Israel began to believe. Not just in Moses, but in the God that was behind Moses. And so they, they went along with it, and they began to buy into this story that God was going to deliver them through, through Moses. And so there are stories there about how they as individuals, and they as families, and they as tribes, and them as a nation, uh, transitioned and changed from disbelieving to believing based upon what they began to see as evidence of the power of God. They were to tell stories about the ten plagues, where, where God turned all of the water into blood, uh, where there were um, insects and all kinds of, of plagues that God was bringing upon the nation of Egypt. They were to be telling 
they were to be telling these stories. They were to be telling the story of when God sends in the, 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 the destroyer to, to wipe out all firstborn children in the nation of Egypt except for the Israelites, but only if they put the blood of the lamb on their doors. And they were to tell the story of over 2 million people. And so the text says that there were over 600,000 men. And then it says not including the women and the children. And so over 2 million, over 2 million people. And so a, a story of a, a, a number of people equivalent, almost equivalent to the Twin Cities metropolitan area. Okay, imagine what that looked like leaving by night because Egypt wanted them to leave so quickly. So they left at night and they went out into the wilderness and then they get to the Red Sea and they were to be telling the stories about God taking the Red Sea and dividing it in half and these huge walls of water that were at their sides as they passed through. Can you imagine telling these stories to your kids. They're unbelievable stories. We would make movies about it, which obviously we have. We would make songs, we'd make plays and musicals, and you can find all these things throughout, throughout our history. And next week we're gonna look at, they did come up with a song. For three days they sang and celebrated. And we're gonna look at the importance of song next week. And then the story of God destroying the greatest military power the world knew at that time without them doing anything. 600 chariots, their riders, the horses, and all the equipment they brought, completely destroyed by God. What an amazing story to tell. What an amazing story to tell. And Israel kept the Passover up until the prophet Samuel. So if you're in your Bible and you're thinking, okay, about what time is that? Uh, Joshua goes into the land they conquer a lot of the nations, but not all of them. Moses died before they went into the land. Joshua took the lead. And so the book of Joshua covers the, the time period where Israel came into the land and conquered the nations and took possession of it. And then the book of Judges is the story of about 400 years where Israel was trying to follow God, not doing a very good job of it, worshiping idols. Lawrence preached on Judges a few years ago. It's not a good time for the nation of Israel. And then the nation wants a king. And so they ask Samuel the prophet, hey, we want a king. Up until the time of Samuel the prophet, so about 400 years, they kept Passover. They told these stories to their kids. At least some did. Because also in the book of Judges, it says at the beginning um, that they failed to pass on the faith to their children. So the text says later that through the time of Samuel, they were keeping Passover. But from the time of Samuel, so from Saul as king, David as king, Solomon as king, and all the hundreds of years of kings after them, they didn't keep the Passover. This is their nation-forming event. This is their identity. This was to be the story that was impressed in all of their minds about God delivering. Our story is Jesus' cross and his resurrection from the dead. That's the greatest story. This story 
was a story leading up to that story, and it's a story that kind of uh, precludes it and, and speaks of it in, in very cryptic in prophetic ways. So we have a story, it's 2,000 years old, and the church has held on to that story. And we tell our kids that story. Some churches do, not, not everybody. Because a lot of churches no longer have the faith. King Josiah, one of the last kings in the nation of Israel, came to be king, and they were cleaning out the temple. And they found their Bible. And they came and they read the Bible to Josiah. And upon the conclusion of the reading, Josiah started weeping. And he became very fearful. And he tore his clothes. And he says, what has happened to us as a nation? We have forgotten this story. And he ushered in a whole set of reforms and destroyed all the temples for the false prophets and destroyed a lot of the false priests. And he started to tell this story again in the nation of Israel. And so the question that I, that I have for us, well, I have, I, have, I have two questions. Are we telling this story and not just this story, but all of the stories of God delivering his people. We tell the story about the cross and the resurrection, and that ultimately is the story that we need to be telling, of God delivering us from the slavery that we are in to our own sin. But the, the gospel and the stories of God's deliverance isn't just for that one salvation event where we are forgiven of our sins and regenerated by the Holy Spirit and washed clean. That, that is the gospel and we've, we've come to see that, that so much is around that event where we come to the place of faith when we become a child of God and the Spirit is given to us. But we need to see, and we see it through the stories throughout all of Scripture, we see that, that God's deliverance is ultimately, yes, indeed, through the gospel because all of our suffering and our misery and our need for deliverance and our need for salvation uh, is, is, is coming from, in some way or another, the existence of sin and corruption in this world. And so are we telling ourselves the stories in Scripture that remind us on a regular basis that whatever suffering that we're going through, whatever need that we have, whether it is our fault or the fault of others. We had a great question last week, came to me and just said, you know what, George, you, you talk about suffering that is good and it's preparing us for joy. Absolutely. But what about suffering that we're experiencing because it's our fault? Suffering that we are experiencing is always the consequence of sin. Either our sin, somebody else's sin, or just the corruption that is in the world. And when the, the gospel says in a number of places throughout Scripture and certainly contained within all the promises that you see about what the Messiah Christ will do is that he will reconcile all things in heaven and on earth to the Father through the blood of his cross. That isn't just your sins and it's their effect on you. 
It's your sins and their effect on you and your sins and their effect on others and other sins and their effects on you and the sins of, all, of, of people and of nations and of races and of the systems and institutions and governments, all of the sin. Jesus Christ is working and turning and twisting and eventually it'll come to an end. And everything will be summed up in Jesus Christ where everything that is evil and has not repented will be destroyed and everything that has been a part of God's re redemptive process will be transformed and made beautiful. Amen. Especially those who have called upon his name. So we are always experiencing suffering to some degree because of our sins, somebody else's sin, or the sins of the world against us. And it is in those moments where we've got to cry out for deliverance and cry out for salvation. But oftentimes in our culture, we, we, our culture is so oriented around pursuing a comfort and peace that that just becomes our lifestyle. And we stop seeking God for the true peace in mind and spirit that we can in, in have even when we are suffering Instead of that type of joy and peace, which is enduring and deep-seated, we look for surface-level peace in our, in our culture that seeks for comfort, and we, we bypass the deliverance that God gives. And so we keep satisfying ourselves with more of these things that kind of are band-aids. And I think, it's, I, I think that, 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 that we, you know, we, we should be thankful for the blessings that we have. But I think in some ways, uh, the, the challenges that we face in our world are some of the most extreme because I think they're some of the most dangerous because they can sedate us to where we really need God. And so are we telling the stories that keep, keep us in the mindset of needing God? But the other question that I ask is that it is do we put ourselves into places and situations where we're striving to love and serve others and to do good in this world and we are really going to have to depend upon God or else we won't make it? You know, and I asked myself that question and, I, and I've told stories from the pulpit in here of, of circumstances in our lives where we've had those kinds of, of of circumstances. But as I was thinking this week, I, I, uh, I thought of, of Ty and Sarah Schoback. And I know many of you know them and some of the circumstances that they're in and some of the challenges that they face. But, but about a year and a half, two years ago, they, they, they got the idea to start a business so that they could provide jobs and do good in the world and provide income to support some of the projects that we were doing like Twin Cities Ministries and the efforts that we've got in, in Portugal and in Mozambique and some of these other things. Uh, that was their, their goal. We, we, they, they felt like they had the resources to do it. They, had, they felt like they had an opportunity and calling to do it. And they got some counsel uh, from, from people that had started their own businesses and they, they got a lawyer and, and they really worked hard at it. Well, into the process, they hit some significant challenges, 
significant challenge, significant financial challenges, significant uh, people challenges and relationship challenges. Um, and they came to a place where um, their, their livelihood and welfare as a family um, was really dependent upon God delivering them. And uh, they had passages, uh, Psalm 37 is a, is a beautiful psalm about God delivering from wicked enemies. And that became a significant uh, theme and prayer for them. And, and they, they made decisions to, to fast in certain ways until God delivered them, uh, in particular from this one really wicked person. But along the way, they also were taught by God uh, areas in their life where they really needed to, to repent and to, to deepen their commitment to the Lord in regard to their, to their family and, and where they were living and their finances. And they really came to a place, instead of letting these circumstances destroy them into bitterness and anger and, 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 and shame, they kept the process exposed to their house church, to their leadership, to the elders. They stayed in prayer and they sought God's deliverance. And they're still seeking God's deliverance in it. But God has delivered in some significant ways. But along the way, he's taught them a lot. You know, for years and for generations, they're going to be able to tell stories to their kids. They've got two girls that, you know, I'm sure had a sense that, that the last year and a half has been stressful, but they don't know why. But as they get older, those are stories that Ty and Sarah are going to be able to share with them. And we have other stories of deliverance in the church. And I called Ty and Sarah up and asked them if I could share these things. But oftentimes, we, we either don't think we have enough resources, we don't have enough opportunities, or we're just blind to what good we could do, or maybe we see the good that we could do, and we're not willing to step out in faith because we know that if God doesn't deliver, we're not going to make it. And that's all, those are hard things to do, especially if it's going to interrupt our comfort, our financial welfare, or the safety and security of our families. The people of Israel, this was home for 400 years. That's longer than the United States has been a nation. This was their home. And we're going to see that as they get into the desert, they're going to start complaining. Now, I'm going to bring up a specific detail on that. So, in terms of what, what could we do? What could we do? I think, you know, we've got the serving, serving a movement time in our Sunday mornings. Uh, maybe we should insert a time that's that we have where somebody is remembering God's deliverance. Maybe in our house churches, um, we make a, a more concerted effort to hear the testimonies of people, not just about how God initially saved them, but other ways that God has delivered them throughout the years. Every time, every time we've tried to do this in our house churches, we kind of start out and it just kind of sputters. We forget to do it. And so, again, there's a few things that, that came to mind as I was preparing this that we'd like to, I'd like to, to talk about and discuss in my own family and in our own house church just about um, taking more intentional time and effort to remember and to thank God, which gives us more, I think, energy and boldness to continue to take steps that require 
his de- depend- dependence upon him. Second thing, uh, feasting and celebrating. I've always found it really interesting that, that God gave them instruction to feast with their belt fastened and their sandals on and a staff in one hand. Okay, so you can kind of imagine they're fully dressed as if they're ready to, to just go out the door. All right, imagine when you're leaving for a trip. You've got your suitcase, you've got, you know, all your stuff ready to go. Excuse me. And then you sit down and have a meal. That's what it was. Everything's packed by the door, ready to go, to put in the van, and and everybody's dressed, and then you sit down and decide to have a meal. So in the midst of the feast, God is instructing them to, to make some physical efforts with their dress that further impresses into their minds and their hearts and their memories what was going on here. You are leaving home. So for generation upon generation upon generation, they were to kind of replay, put a drama. They were putting drama behind this. You're leaving home. God is about ready to deliver you. And then the seven, so there's seven days. It's a seven-day long celebration. They couldn't work on the first day. They couldn't work on the seventh day. They could work in between, but they were not to eat any bread with yeast in it for the entire seven days. So the whole seven days, this whole week, We have 52 weeks a year, so it's 2% of their lives was devoted this entire week to thinking about God delivering them, to be retelling those stories to their kids and to one another. And so the feast and the dress further impressed upon their, their memories so that it would be memorable, so they would hold it in their minds. And it gave it a sense to, I mean, imagine again, put yourself into Israel's place. You've been in this place for 400 years. You've built homes. You've built gardens. You've established systems and processes and everything's going as a city. I mean, they're a city, a city of over 2 million people. And they're just going to go up and they're going to walk around in the wilderness and it's midnight. And you're not really sure. I mean, you've seen God do some incredible things over these 10 plagues. But where's home going to be? Where's home going to be? And so there's some danger to it in your mind. And and God is trying to help them understand and to to put some things into their practices that would kind of give a sense of of that tension and of that danger and of the unexpected to come. And then he's just going to blow their minds even more. And so we have our Lord's Supper. We have a a regular feast, so to speak, that we engage in on a weekly basis. My fear is, my fear is that that Lord's Supper, and I I think this is the fear whether we do it once a week or four times a year or once a year, that it just becomes something that's a part of what we do. And we don't think about what it means. We don't think about the significance of it. We're not telling the stories around it, or we're not giving it the time or the, the solemnity that it, that it really requires. And I think maybe in our house churches, perhaps, that we, perhaps we should make some more uh, intentional celebrations, maybe around the holidays, I don't know, but a week long, 
a week long, they as a people were to be remembering these things. You know, when we, when we come into Christmas time, it's like, you know, whatever, to Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving to Christmas is a, one's one month that's, that's uh, in the Constitution. <laughs> and so we're to be thinking about Christmas for a whole month. Really, it's not thinking about Christmas, it's thinking about buying things, because that's why Congress instituted that month-long thing, is so that we'd have more time to buy things, because the merchants persuaded Congress to make that. Anyway, our culture, our culture has a whole month devoted to consumerism. So we as a church could maybe take that month of consumerism and think of it maybe as a month of service in celebration of Jesus, even though he was born in the spring. That's another message, right? Perhaps we have an annual celebration in the fall that maybe we get dressed up for. Maybe we have a dance that commemorates the founding of the church. Something that gives us a, a greater sense of God's work in us as a people, that gives us a greater sense of our identity as a people, some things that we can pass on to future generations. These are just ideas. Things to talk about in your house churches. Instructing and storytelling. I mean, all these kind of things are, are integrated. They had an event that, break, that, that broke up the normal. And the children were asking questions. Hey, why do we do this? Why do we take a whole week off of eating uh, bread that's not as good as the bread that we eat the other 51 weeks of the year? I like leavened bread. Well, here's why. Here's where we get dressed up and looks like we're heading out on a journey and we're just having dinner. Here's why we do this. Here's why we, we kill this lamb and put all of its blood in, the, in a basin and spread the blood on our doorposts. Here's why. And you tell all those stories and you tell about your own journeys of faith. I thought that Moses guy was a lunatic. But after the third plague, uh, it really became clear that God was behind this man. So all of that whole nation had stories to tell, all those families, all those people. Can you imagine observing? I mean, the movies now, they do a great job at it. Can you imagine observing the Red Sea and the wall of water at your side and then you going safely through it and then, and then the largest army in the world being destroyed? by an invisible force that you knew only as God. And you didn't have your Bible. You had some fragments, or the, 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 the nation, the people had some fragments of their history that is largely the book of Genesis, that Moses took and incorporated it into the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch. You didn't have a Bible. All you had was this, this history from this guy named Abraham and a few stories about him and his kids, and then 400 years of slavery. That's all you had. And then you see something so amazing and incredible. Beautiful stories. We must tell our stories, but we've got to have stories to tell. Anybody see that movie Hacksaw Ridge? Lately? If you haven't seen it, you need to go see it. Uh, you know what? I got done watching that movie, and the first thing I thought was, Imagine having that story to tell. It is incredible. Now, we checked some things out historically. So here's the story. You've got to see the movie. We're not really giving it away. So there's a, there's a young man. He's a devoted Christian. 
And he wants to serve in the army during, during World War II because he has a sense of duty. And he felt like it would be morally wrong to sit home as a conscientious objector when all of his friends were going off to fight for his country. But he didn't have the conviction, he had a conviction that he couldn't hold a weapon. Okay? Nothing really out of the scripture, more so out of what had been going on in his own family, but he determined never to hold a weapon again. And so he was made fun of and made fun of and made fun of by his platoon, but he got through boot camp. Uh, they, he wanted to be a medic. They assigned him as a medic. And, and in one of the most violent but critical battles in all of World War, World War II, it was on the island of Okinawa, which was, we, we had to take this island in order to get a base established for an assault against Japan. And so they had to, the, the, the allies had to take this island. And they had to, they had to uh, take this particular coastline that had a 400-foot cliff wall that they had to climb up in order to take it. And then, yeah, they used the, the, the bombers and they kind of, you know, did a strafing so that they could get as many as the ground forces of Japan destroyed. But they had to climb up this 400-foot wall and then an assault, a land assault with mil and it just, I mean, it, it's called Hacksaw Ridge just because it's just, the, the people were just obliterated. And at the end of the day, the Allies suffer this, this just horrible defeat. And there's just bodies scattered over this entire plane. And everybody retreats, except this one guy. And not everybody's dead. Some of them have their arms blown off or their legs blown off. He spends the entire night going out, and there's still enemies out there patrolling. He goes out, he grabs somebody, he brings them back, and lowers them down with a rope. All these people that have been wounded and have lost limbs. And over the course of the night, 75 people he let down. And so he becomes this big hero. And you're like, Phew. wouldn't that be a great story to tell? But he only got to the place of being able to tell that story because of his, of his love for God and of his desires to serve and love people. And that conviction and, and the suffering that he went through in boot camp prepared him for the suffering that he would go through on top of that ridge, which would then lead to amazing stories of deliverance for 75 men and their families and loved ones. And his story is still being told. Now, that's pretty unusual. Okay, not very many of us, if any, are going to have those kinds of stories. But we can have stories, but we can have stories about how our lives affect others. We can have stories about how other people's lives have affected us. And you know what happens after a few years or maybe a few decades? You, you are now a part of a lot of people's stories, and a lot of people are a part of yours. And those stories need to be told. Those stories need to be told. Lastly, watching and waiting. You know, there's again a sense of danger and readiness in the people of Egypt. And a sense that what had been home for 400 years is really not their home. 
They were promised a land, the land of Canaan. They couldn't see it. They didn't know anything about it. They were just told, hey, God is going to take us to a place flowing with milk and honey. <laughs> That's all they had. That and ten plagues and the destruction of Egypt's army, which was pretty incredible. But they get into the wilderness. <clears throat> In a very short period of time, they start complaining. We don't have enough to drink. We don't have enough to eat. See, we can settle into Egypt here to where if we get to the point where hey, we don't have enough to eat, we don't have enough to drink, which wouldn't really be our complaints. And we can settle in and just pursue living in Egypt or living in Babylon, if you take the, the metaphor out of Revelation. Babylon being uh, the quintessential image of everything opposed to God. We could settle into Babylon. America is Babylon, the global culture of pleasure and power. Well, they come to this place, Numbers 11. I'm just going to read it. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taborah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. The rabble are the non-Hebrews that left Egypt with them. They said, hey, I think this God is great. I'm going with them. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, this is one of the funniest quotes, I think, in the, in the Pentateuch. Oh, that we had meat to eat. Remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing? The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. <laughs> but now our strength is dried up because you don't have cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic? Our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. And then God got really mad again. We can settle into Egypt. We can settle into Babylon. And get to the point where what would be our onions and cucumbers and garlics and leeks... And it very well may be the things that give us strength are our abundance of food or our abundance of comfort in our homes. I don't know. I don't know. But what I do know is that it seems like when the people of God see a need or see a way to serve or see a way to do good, and they believe that, that their resources 
along with the promised resources of God and needing the required resources of God, we can, we can accomplish and we can meet the needs. We can do these things. Our, our next, our next, I think our next opportunity in Twin Cities Ministries, and we've talked about this for a while, is, is a, a woman's home with children. It's a whole different thing than a men's home because we have no children with a men's home. It's by law, and we wouldn't want to do it. Um, and so it's going to have to be a much more substantial thing, like a fourplex apartment where, each, where a woman and her children have a place their own. Each has a door. It's like an apartment or a condo type of thing. So Seth said there aren't very many uh, places that meet this need. But we, ca we can't do it just as Twin Cities Church. We're going to need New Life Church. We're going to need other churches. And I'm going to use this as kind of a gathering point around a project because what I have found over years of ministry is, is that people have a lot of good intentions of doing something together and, and being unified together, but if there's not a specific project to work on and go towards, um, nothing ever happens. And so I want to use this, this need as a project, and we've got, it'll take some time, but we've got some learning and some organizational capacity to build up before we're able to do it anyway. Um, but that's a big need, and I want us to all be praying about that. It's going to be a big financial need, and it's, then there's going to be a big shepherding need, okay? Single moms or moms that are estranged from their husbands with kids. You all know the needs there. It's hard enough when your whole life is together and in order to have small kids and keep a household and for the marriages to stay good. It's hard work. A lot of need. It's just one thing. Here's my concluding thoughts. There are needs and opportunities that need God's deliverance in us and around us. Small and big. And as families and house churches and as a church, I believe we do generally well in seeking God, serving and giving to help people experience God's deliverance on an ongoing, continual basis. I really believe that. Here's where I think we could improve. I think if we could engage in more concerted prayer and fasting for long-term big needs in our lives and the lives of people around us. You know, Israel was crying out for a long time, years, for God to deliver them. A huge need, a huge ask, a lot of time a lot of devotion. I think that there's some things that we could do as families, as house churches, and as a large church where we, we observe some of these needs and we just take the efforts to put some discipline and some structure around these and start praying for them, start giving towards them, start talking to people about them and see what God does. Part of this is work that we've got to do as leadership on it. Um, but I think that's a, uh, uh, something that we could do. I also think that we could engage in more deliberate and extended rhythms of storytelling and worship and celebration for what God has done. Because that's going to keep us remembering all of the great things that God has done. If I were to go back eight years and start telling stories about the prayers that have been answered in the, you know, our house church, which has been like five different iterations of it over the past eight years, jobs that have been prayed for, 
health conditions that have been prayed for, homes that have been prayed for, people's salvations that have been prayed for, people repenting that have been prayed for, and God delivering overwhelmingly, abundantly in all of those things. I, I, I wish I had written them all down because they would be great stories to continue to tell. Some people are not even here at the church anymore, and their stories are going to be forgotten about what happened in their lives in Twin Cities Church, and that's a regret for me. So I think that we could do a little bit more of that. Because all of it, again, the gospel's not just, the gospel's just not us being saved at one moment in time. The, the gospel is us being saved all the time. That, that Jesus Christ and his blood, foretold by the Lamb's blood, but Jesus Christ and his blood is constantly at work in our advocacy. And God is at work to cleanse us and to bring joy and strength into our lives and to pull us through suffering and sometimes to put us into suffering so that greater joy can be experienced on the tail end. That is the gospel. Jesus Christ died for you and rose from the dead. He died so that you could have life. And we need to stop seeing that just as our point of salvation and start seeing that the blood of the cross is our salvation all the time. Little things that cause us anxiety, big things that may destroy our lives, and then celebrating when God redeems and saves all of us. Let me pray. God, thank you for this great story. Thank you for the power that was manifested there in the deliverance of Egypt. But God, greater power was manifested and demonstrated and displayed in the resurrecting of your Son. And your Scripture teaches that that same power is at work in us. Unbelievable. But God, we think lightly of it. So God, our prayer. Our prayer is that you would strengthen our faith and our hope in that power so that we have the willingness to step out in obedience to you and in love for the people around us, the church, the world that has needs that need to be met. In your son's precious name we pray, amen.